Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. up everybody welcome back to the o2 podcast the ohio outdoors podcast uh this week we are going to start part two of our uh, little series here with dr ashby but first island paul island paul man do island, i look do island. i look tanner more tan yes than i did last time i was You're here more island paul like now oh man i loved it great time had a good time in south carolina saw an alligator saw a bunch of turtles saw some crazy birds beached it up man it was a good time good trip had a lot of fun but you and i were talking about it earlier when you have kids and you go on vacation it's not really vacation it's kind no. of just living in another yeah place and you know my, my daughters are really young and so the purple coat mafia they were out pretty quick man by by wednesday they were ready to come home yeah. and my poor wife it was they were like little barnacles I mean, they did not leave her alone. They touched her the entire time. Mom, mom, mom Yeah, mom. exactly. And she <laughs> she was just stressed out, and I'm just, like, super relaxed. And <laughs> That's that's know. one of my favorite things, though, is, like, when we'll be – it doesn't even have to be on vacation, but the kids, it'll be like, Mom, can you open this? As they were sitting next to yeah. me, they, like, go out of their way to find her. She's like, why don't you ask your father? He's sitting right oh, there. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Why do kids do that? Because my girls do that all the time. And my, my, my wife will be like, well, you, you, you literally walked by your father that's doing <laughs> absolutely nothing. And she's like doing dishes or some crap like that. And I'm just sitting there watching Netflix. <laughs> so got to love the wives, man. Got to love the moms. Take care and everything. So. Yeah. Anywho. Uh, so good trip for you. Uh, yeah, it was what, good. Man. What else has been going on? Anything? Got- Shot our bow a little bit uh, tonight. That was a lot of fun getting dialed in for. For that i'm still waiting on my bear bow to get here so it's coming it'll mm-hmm. be here be here in time to shoot some deer this year but like a kid on christmas wait oh man that. i can't i can't wait i was lo- i was looking for him advances today when i was there poking around buying some stuff i was actually looking for a new rifle and i've had like muzzle loaders and you know i've had like 22s and t- every type of shotgun that you can imagine i've never owned like a large caliber rifle it's just not the type of honey like, like you know we live in Ohio. We just got straight wall cartridge rifles, what, five years ago? So it's not, you know, and, and I, I don't own an AR and you know, do, do your thing. It's just not, it's just not for me. You know, it's just not something that I want to spend my money on. So I'm like looking at these, at these rifles today and realized how overwhelmed I was. And the guy that was there, he's like, eh, he's like, I'm not a hunter, man. I'm an AR guy. I'm like, well, we are in two different worlds. So had a lot of fun, panicked a little bit, but yeah, I was looking for, I was looking for those bear bows. I wanted to see. I'm gonna put my hands on it. How's the, how's the stock uh, inventory look over there? They got a lot of stuff, man. Good. A lot of stuff. They got uh, a ton of a ton of firearms in stock. They got a bunch of ammo. They've got they got good good selection. So good. They, whatever supply chain issues the world has, Vance's has been doing doing a nice job. So getting stuff moving in and out. But good. Yeah. Good, what about good, you, good. man? Anything fun going on? Uh, same type of thing. Mostly just been shooting arrows and tinkering. Lots of tinkering. 
Um, you had a big a big change in your setup this well, week. Last week. Yeah, we're gonna try the yeah. hinge release that I picked up in an attempt to fight some of my target panic. So I I get a little jumpy. Uh, maybe is the term. Hi- so with the target panic, that's like you deal with that with 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 the target and a deer, right? I mean, yes. you kill with deer all the time. I do. You're doing something right. But I think I get lucky. Is that what it is? Yeah. Because I think I just, you know what, the, it, the thing is like when the pin hits the spot and I just like jam the trigger really hard. Um, I know you're supposed to really like cur- curl your finger and really slowly pinch, you know, b- release, uh, pull the squeeze trigger. It or squeeze whatever. the trigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah there yeah. you go. Um, But I, I just still get a little bit jumpy and. After those two archery shoots that we did, uh, Vince made it very clear that I still am punching the trigger way more than I should. So I thought we'll go give this thing a, um, a chance, a shot. And it's cool. It's going to take some time to get used to, um, but it's definitely, you know, you're not really sure when it's going to go off. So <laughs> it's uh, going to. I think we talked about that. I guess that's just the nuances of the way that that release works. I tried it. I, I couldn't even get it to lock. I mean, I, I tried it a dozen times and just yeah. looked at you like, I'm, I'm done. I can't do this. Yeah, and it, I mean, if anybody's if never shot, tried one, go to your range and or your archery shop, and, and I'm sure they've got one. You can test it. Um, and that's what I did, and I, I liked it enough that I thought that I might be able to get somewhere. I'm not sure about hunting with it, and I'm not sure that you even really want to, but I think what it'll do is help me to get more under control so that when the time comes with that trigger release, things go smoother uh, but so is, is like the target panic is it like is it a mental thing is it overthinking it for, for you generally or like overall i because a ton of people deal with it like this is not uh it's like a, i think it's a, it's a pretty large majority of archers archery shooters in this country i feel like deal with that on some level i mean i know every time you pull back in a deer there's some level of target panic right yeah for any of us but i you know what for me when it when it comes to the deer i i kind of black out so i don't necessarily feel like at that point it's happening but the same thing will happen to me with guns and it's like i start first of all i startle easily always have like when i was a little kid i didn't like fireworks because it just would it kept me real jumpy all this kind of stuff um so like i am gonna scare you i i will every chance you in the (laughs) throat every chance i get (laughs) i will punch you in the throat (laughs) but no i do so i startle easily so guns are no different now that being said like i can shoot or used to be able to shoot um trap pretty good because i wasn't really thinking about it It was just like oh there's thing boom 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 um but when i start thinking about like okay when i pull this trigger it's going to go bang or even with the bow like when i pull this it's going to do something even though it's obviously not nearly the there's no repercussion coming off of a bow but it's still like there's something there so that's what gets me um, I get a little bit jumpy and ner- I don't know if nervous is the right word, the target panic, whatever you want to trigger panic. But a lot of times when it comes to the deer, um, I don't, I don't know that I feel that as much as I'm just, it's more, you know, deer fever, buck fever, yeah. um, doe fever in my case, but yeah. So it's tough to deal with. I know a couple years ago I went down to Athens County, visited my buddy, John and his wife had bought him the savage, the savited slug, like the rifle barrel, bolt action shotguns. It was a nice gun. And like you said earlier, I, I don't hunt, never really hunted with a rifle, definitely never used the scope. 
And so I had two really nice bucks, like 80 yards across the ridge from me. I mean, broadside had no idea I was there. And I pull up that and, and look through that scope and realize that I've never really shot through a scope. And I was like, oh, God, what do I do? I totally panicked and blew, <laughs> blew three rounds that were both, all, both of these deer oh, damn. trying to figure it out. And so naturally, I like blame the gun. Um, but I don't know, man. I, I For me, it's like when that like that scope, that's the target panic for me, for sure. I just don't know what I'm doing. And then you just start looking, you know, behind it, and I can't get my eyes to focus, and I can't get my brain to focus, and I'm shaking all over the place. And it's just, I don't know, it's 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 tough. But I know if you don't deal with it, good for you. You are, I feel like you're in the, the minority. But, uh, yeah, target panic, man. We'll, we'll figure that one out, I guess, together, right? Yeah, so. one day at a time. So yeah. just keep practicing. Yeah. That's my thing, but... Today I filled out, I, I, I applied for uh, a couple of duck hunts, waterfowl hunts, in a, in a blind lottery, so that was cool. So we've got until, what, July 31st to do that. Small game, waterfowl, deer, archery, deer gun, mentor hunts, all sorts of, all sorts of good stuff. So you can do that through the Wild Ohio, or what is it, a fish – Fishing Game Ohio, whatever the app is. You guys live here. You know what the hell I'm talking about. The, the, the app we buy our license through, and if we don't, download it. It's pretty sweet. But hunt, hunt Fish Ohio. Hunt Fish Ohio. There you go. You can do it on there. You do have to have your uh, your deer tag to be able to apply for those those deer hunts um, and all that good stuff. So, yeah, check that out, Wide Ohio. So what do we got? We got well, uh, the day that this releases, Paul, we are going to be 59 days out from the archery deer opener. 59. 59. And that would be, what did I say? That open, early open up there in the DSA zone is September 10th. So knock 14 days off of that. That's very cool. I can't wait for that. You know, I'm getting ready. 45 days. What's that? Yeah, I'm getting ready for that. I want to do that DSA hunt. Yeah. How are you getting ready? Buying stuff off Go Wild. Yeah. I love that damn site, man. I'm always looking at it. It's addicting. They keep adding new stuff. It is. It's, yeah. it, and like we always talk, uh, good buddies down there at Brad and, and crew, and uh, I know it's not just Brad. So I, I want to throw you under the bus here a little bit. Go ahead. So why, why was it Hilton Head? You, we have, a, we have a, a group conversation, group text message thread with the guys from Go Wild. And so what was it, Friday night? You, you, you sent a text. You were having a good time drinking some beers, and you said you were cooking steaks, and you took a picture of a, of a, of a drink. And in the background, hold on. You didn't even tell the whole thing. I was listening to Cole Chaney. Oh yeah, there we go. Thank you. Drinking a Country Boy beer, which was one of the beer uh, vendors that was down, fantastic beer down there at Sunday Slam. Yes, fantastic. Top ten that I've ever had. That that orange, fantastic. Well and, done, guys. And cooking steak. And cooking steak. And in the background, in a pan on your stove was a steak in this little tiny pan and so i'm i'm in either in hilton head or driving back and i'm looking at this and i'm like is that dude pan frying steak like in the summer i i know that you have you have a grill you have a smoker you have a very nice patio right next to the pool i'm like he's pan frying a steak and i i I didn't call you i was gonna bust your ass outside and luckily Old Ted Boogie jumped in and was having none of that and called you out on it. So, (laughs) pan frying a steak was it December? No. Okay. Okay. Was it? It was a deer steak, right? No, actually, it wasn't. Um, Somebody, uh, I think, from work gave me the Omaha steaks. Oh yeah, uh, that was for uh, Christmas last year. 
my family was out of the uh, house this weekend. So at Bachelor, uh, I just pulled these steaks out and was like, I'm going to cook them. Now, here is why I did them in the pan, okay? <laughs> okay? I wasn't just trying to pretend like I was from Kentucky while I was drinking the Kentucky beer and listening <laughs> to Kentucky music, okay? But just joking, Kentucky. But uh, when uh, Brian Hall and I went turkey hunting, he had his camp stove thing, and he did everything he did, he did in beef tallow, like oh, okay. um, fat that he would he did burgers in the one night. And then venison backstraps and the other night, basically in a pan. And it was some of the best meat I've ever eaten. And it was because of that flavor of the fat and stuff. Yeah. So I don't have beef tallow yet. I'm working on that. Um, but a rendered down beef tallow. Uh, so I, this is going to sound really stupid. I had coconut oil and I had done it the a uh, couple days prior and it gave a very, it's, it's a similar consistency and all that kind of stuff, fat uh, oil or whatever. But like, it gave a great flavor. Did it really? So, yeah. So I, coconut mean, oil. Son of a bitch. I really? Am, I, I would rather have beef, beef lard. Beef towel, okay. But the, uh, it worked great, man. And that, okay. when I did that a couple times, I'm like, this is this is really good. This is not bad. Yeah. So and I was doing like the no carb stuff last week. Yeah. Or a couple of weeks I've been doing that now. And the uh, so it fit right in the diet and everything. And I was like, and it, it's it. delicious. So. You can go ahead and make fun of me all you want. I, I'm not. I'm going to try it. I will make you some steak one day. Yeah. That way. We eat. You'll love it. With the diet change that we've made in the last year, we we eat a lot of coconut products. So I have plenty of coconut. Island Paul. Stuff. Yeah, Island Paul. There you go. But so. so what else we got? Tether, those guys, Teach and Train coming up. What is that? August 27th. 27th. Yes. Advances in Columbus, I would assume. Might be Hebron. We're still waiting on that. We're getting clarification from those guys. I talked to him. Yeah, you, okay. yeah, you talked to him. So good guys, is, good group of guys. Listen I, to their podcast. What is this? I think it's just Vance Outdoors. They, they got a good show, something like that. Yeah. Um, so if you're not from Central Ohio or Southern Ohio, Vance is an outdoor retailer um, in the Columbus area. They've got an office out in Hebron. Um, it's it's very nice, and they've got a lot of bows and guns yeah. and everything out there. But boats, they got everything. Boats, out there. Man, fishing it's cool. stuff. It's a cool store. They're like a staple in Central Ohio. It is. And they've been on. We're going to try to get them on the show to give you guys more uh, information. But they are going to host a teach and train for Tethered. Yeah. Retailer. Yes. Retailer. It's going to be August 27th. Okay. I think they said from 10 to 4. It's going to be an indoor event. Okay. So if it's hot, it's indoors. If it's raining, it's indoors. Like there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to come. Um, they are going to have lots of product on hand. So oh, nice. if you find something and you want to buy it, they should have it in stock. Tether's got that new one stick that, that they came. It's like what? One, one pound, two ounces or something like that. Stupid light. Yeah. I think it'll be pretty wild, but these guys are going to have, you know, I think they said John Eberhardt's going to come down. And oh, that guy's a legend. Oh, damn. He's like one of the original saddle hunters. Yeah. So have you, have you seen the Exodus trail cams also an Ohio company? Their their um their whitetail cribs YouTube series that they did, so they did Mike Rex friend of the program, his house was awesome. John Eberhardt's house in Michigan is insane. I mean, I bet if you like totaled up like inches killed of whitetails and elks, dude, this guy this guy's got to be like top three. The guy crazy. is insane. Crazy, crazy. Yeah, so good dude. Anyhow, if you've ever been wondering about the saddle stuff, and it, I get it. Trust me, I get it. It looks really confusing. It looks it's overwhelming. Overwhelming. What do I need? What do I What do I have to have? What do I not have to have? Uh, is it going to fit me? All that kind of stuff. This would be a fabulous opportunity to come down 
and you can ask all the questions you have and try stuff out and pick it up, take it, feel it, any of that kind of stuff. So August 27th, Vance's Hebron, Ohio. Um, I was on their website earlier. I did not see any more information about it, but I'm sure they will be on there soon, and we'll bring them to you as well. The other good tethered news First Light, Spectre Saddle. That thing's pretty pretty cool, man. You haven't seen that Spectre pattern. I switched over to it during turkey season. It is pretty nice. Real nice. And now we can say that officially First Light has got their waterfowl gear out. Yes, they do. So that whole lineup is there. Uh, We talked a little bit about that last week. I think there might still be a couple more things. There's some stuff coming gonna, down the pipeline. Yeah. They're going to release here yeah, soon, but I can't that. tell you, and I don't, I because re- I don't know. Um, but we'll have more information about that before long. The other thing we didn't talk about: small game, September first. Was that a Monday? I don't know what day September first is. So we've got rabbits, not rabbits, cheese, squirrels, Waskawee doves. Wait. Couple days later, we'll have teal and, and early Canada goose. So that'll be cool. That's like that first time I, I I get all jacked up to go dove hunting or squirrel hunt. Doesn't matter. It's just you can get in the woods. First time really since since turkey season for me. I don't I haven't done any coyote hunting in years, but it's like it's like that's a very exciting day for me. September first. I usually take that day off of work, so it, it will continue. September first. I don't know what day of the week it is. Yeah, but. it's always September first. Um, I'm just looking through here. Yeah, I'm not sure. Let's see. What are we? So September first is a Thursday. Thursday, September first. Call off work. <laughs> we'll do. Let's let's do Paul, an Paul O2. Said it, Paul said it's okay. Yeah, Paul. Just just tell him that some schmuck from the from the podcast. Oh, no. All right. Let's do. Let's do an O2 squirrel hunt. <laughs> O2 spawn. Kill as many squirrels as we can. We'll go. We'll go to my house and grill some squirrels. I'm looking at Dubs. the. I'm looking at this fox on November 10th. Fox, oh yeah, because I got that, got that bitch big old fox running through my backyard. Get his ass. Stay away from my chicken. So I put my, I put that trail camera, first trail camera I ever put up on public land in my life. So I've gotten a bunch of deer, bunch of does, but there's this one tree in the background of the of of the pictures, and the it's close enough that the camera picks it up, but it's in the back, and the deer is in the same spot every time, and it has its head down every time right in front of this tree. So I wonder if it's like a scraper. I, I have no idea what it is. I'll show you the picture. I've got like seven or eight pictures of this deer in the same over a three week period. That's pretty cool. So it's neat. I, I'm I'm gonna move that camera, I don't know, sometime this week. And I want to I'm gonna go to that tree. I want to see what is holding this deer attention. Like it's just it's fascinating. Interesting. So so what do we got, man? What else? Any, any, anything else in the news with the State Fair? Yes, the Ohio starts? State Fair is uh, October. Wow. July uh, 27th to August 7th. That's what this Wednesday is coming it? up. Yeah, so first day of Wednesday. ODNR will have their uh, area open. Go see Smokey the Bear. Oh, that's the best part of the fair, Smokey the Bear. I, I was, I'm not going to lie, I was probably 25 before I realized that, that people were telling Smokey the Bear what your name was. <laughs> <laughs> and I was at I was at the fair with my girlfriend at the time, Poor and uh, I walk up and I'm like, "Son of a bitch, Smokey! I've seen you in ten years, Smokey. You still remember me? Give me a hug." <laughs> I had no idea that my girlfriend and her sister had snuck up there and told Smokey the Bear what my name was. So that's hilarious. Yeah, good time. The other butter cows are cool. I don't I don't mess with the rides, man. At fairs, carnivals, stuff. even even like after that that tragedy that happened, what 2018. Where that young fellow was that you know was killed at the Ohio State Fair, even before that, for years, 
I don't mess with them. Yeah. I know Nelly's going to be at the Ohio State Fair this year. Nelly. The rapper. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll take you back, take you back to high school. Yeah. Yep. So take off all nope. your... What? <laughs> You're not going to finish that song? This guy knows every word to the WAP I song, but you won't finish... what you won't you're be... talking about. Oh, you lying dog. That's from... <laughs> <laughs> all right, so Dr. Uh, Ashby... Uh, hey, way to change the subject to something fun about hunting on a hunting podcast. The... Uh, we had really good feedback from last week's episode, yeah, so we it was cool. It that guy is super interesting. I, lo- I I really I loved our time with him. I I could talk to him for hours. So we, you know, the the derelict bow hunter that was when internet chat rooms first started. That was his his tag. I don't know if you guys picked up on that in that episode, that last one, but that's what I jokingly said we're going to name that. And I think it's a great it's a great name, but. This episode is the 12 factors of arrow penetration. So it can, there's a lot of information. I think some of them Dr. Ashby would, 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 would talk about each step or each factor, if you will. And you and I are both sitting there going, oh, oh, that makes sense. And just you know, your mind is like spinning. And so, so there, a lot of the stuff we didn't have any, you know, he'd say, do you have any questions? And we're both like, I do, but I don't know what they are yet because I'm still thinking about what you're saying because, you know, you said a hundred words, 10 of them just shook me. Right. And I'm like, you, you just get stuck. So feel free to hit the pause button if you need to during this conversation, because the information that's in the next couple of shows are really, really pertinent to what modern bow hunters, you know, are looking for when it comes to perfect arrow flight and proper bow tuning and penetration and speed and FOC and everything. This is really going to help you is an archer really start to kind of define and clarify the things that you want to accomplish. If that's something that's important to you, if you just want to go out and sling whatever arrow you get out of the box, do it, man. I'm not going to judge you. I don't care. I did that for 15 years. This is the, this is like taking that next step no, for in sure. the evolution of an, of an archer. If you want to get better, this is like, this is where it starts. And so we've got Troy Fowler, the ranch fairy comes on in the next episode that really kind of ties it all in and just says, this is, you know, this is what we're talking about, practical terms and how we do it. Really good stuff. So yep. if you get overloaded, don't stop listening. Hit the pause button. Come back. Think about it. Take your time. This is going to be kind of a longer episode. Uh, I'm not sure you know, what the time is. We've been yakking for, oh, God, 22 minutes, but it's it's good. It's I mean, great. thank God you were there because you know all this stuff. Like You I, have more questions. I mean, half the stuff I'm like, oh, you can knock tune? I had no idea. <laughs> you can turn the knock? I thought it was glued in. Yeah, there's so much here. And like Paul said, he's got all these uh, different data points and stuff, but it's the 12 arrow penetration factors. Remember, he's all about penetration, trying to get that arrow in as far as possible through the most grueling skin, hair, bone, whatever. Um, This is he's not shooting into cardboard like those seek one guys do. And those guys are cool. I'm not I'm not talking trash about them. I like the stuff that they do. But they like duct tape layers of cardboard together for their penetration test. It's not the same. It's not the same. It's it's cardboard. It's not it's not bone, cartilage, sinew, blood, hair, skin, muscle. You know, this dude was shooting into Cape Buffalo. Like it's a, it's an it's impressive. Yeah. So. Yep. Um, I'm trying to think. Again, we did these back in the winter. Um, so I think. This, this episode is going to have a break in it. We're going to break. Yeah, in. we're going to split this. So the the the, the twelve steps we're going to split into two episodes, um, just because they're really really important. They're really good. 
a lot of information. We did have a, a winter storm. Like it was like just sheets of ice. You know what and it the was? Power just, was flickering, and yeah, I think it was that one where it was supposed to start at like up to twenty-two inches of snow. And we got yeah. like four. Yeah, but we still had all we the got wind a ton of, we got a ton of ice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know the, the the power at my house was flicking, and so it was like we thought that instead of losing the whole conversation, we cut cut it short. But yeah. we'll we'll try to do uh, some some good editing so you yeah. won't even realize that. But anywho, this is uh, the beginning of the twelve arrow penetration factors with Doctor Ashby. I hope everybody enjoys, and we will wait. Don't don't. Don't end it yet. Give us a review. We've got some awesome reviews. Oh, Let's yeah. keep that review chain rolling, man. Yes. I, I want to see some 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 funny stuff coming in. If it's important to you, reach out to us. We'll give you some free O2 podcast stuff. We got some cool shirts coming up. We got we got an awesome design down. We're gonna get some hats coming. It's pretty cool. I got a funny shirt coming your way too, buddy. We'll oh boy, out, we'll put them out there. So check the website theo2podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram the.o2.podcast. Follow us on Joe Wild O2 Podcast. Do it. All appreciate of them. you guys, man. Yes, we love do. you guys. We really do. Uh, I can't say enough about about that. We just really, really thank you for guys for listening every every week. So it means a lot to us. You guys, with that, twelve arrow penetration factors coming up. Have a good one. Take care. We're joined today again with Dr. Ed Ashby from the Ashby Foundation. Uh, Ed, how are you doing? It's it's icing down there a little bit, right? Oh yeah, we got a lot of ice down here. <laughs> and you're not you're not used to it. We're, we're getting it up here in Ohio, and and we don't know how to deal with. It. I can't imagine what how that is down down your way, but so <laughs> it's um, not any fun. <laughs> right, it's one of those days you just stay inside and 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 you have uh, Skype calls. So. Yeah, if you got any sense, you stay off the roads today. Right, right. <laughs> so, well, today, you know, last time we talked a lot about your your history and and you know your your career as far as where you went and uh, how you got there. Today, we want to talk a little bit more about the research. And I actually I have in my hand. I don't know if you can see. I've got a twelve factor arrow so that I can follow along. I'm a visual person. I have to be able to see everything as we talk, but. Um, I know that's kind of your, what your research evolved into was the, the, the 12 factor, um, concept, but can we start with what you did in the research? And I mean, I know you, you analyzed 109 or 118 different points and all that kind of stuff, but just the general, uh, you know, idea of what you were shooting, uh, how, how you were shooting it, uh, and, and, and what kind of were some of the, the, factors that you were writing down and measuring the research um, can you give us like the, a short synopsis on, on what that was well basically uh the test course spans a number of years and and i we discussed before the natal study and that started out actually with hunting animals with, with live hunted animals uh, after that we started doing uh setup shots on freshly down game uh within 30 minutes of putting them down because tissue changes occur with time. Rigor mortis sets in, the tonicity of the muscles changes. And so we tried to get all the shots in very quickly before all of that changes. Um, all the testing, with the exception of the tall study, <clears throat> was done always at a 20 yard test distance. Uh, so we have a uniformity of distance in there. We used a variety of equipment, 
Uh, most of it was done with traditional bows, particularly the later part of the study, because we, as we improved the arrow system through the years, we got the penetration so high that with compounds, we're getting exit wounds. And you can't have that when you try and compare one setup to another, because now you've changed penetration mediums. So part of it would be in tissue and part of it would be out in the air. Well, I can't compare that to another era that stops totally within the tissue. So we had to limit uh, the amount of bow force we were using because we had got the arrows up so good uh, that it was making it impossible to do a direct comparison test. Uh, now, we're going back and redoing a lot of stuff now with, uh, with compounds and we're finding the same difficulty, <clears throat> but we've got around it by going to low poundage compounds. Uh, we've got some bows that'll go all the way from 15 pounds to 60 pounds in adjustment. So we can find that point where, okay, we're not getting exit wounds. We're stopping in within the tissues. That way we can get direct comparisons. And we try to test all sorts of things, uh, shafts, um, you know, broadheads, fletchings, everything you can think of, we we try to go in and, and test on it. And so we'll do a lot of focal testing where we're testing just one thing. But on every shot, regardless of what we're testing, we track all the factors. <clears throat> now there's a lot of new things on arrows that weren't there back when I was testing, like outserts and things like that. But none of those were in testing. So we've added a lot of uh, extra factors that we're tracking. And uh, you know we're now tracking over 200 factors from every shot. And it's literally everything measurable on the broadhead from the mechanical advantage, the, the uh, angle of the edge bevels on every blade that's on it, uh, shaft diameters. Uh, and, and you're also tracking everything that was hit every bone that was hit, uh, all the shot angles. And it's just a myriad of information that uh, goes into it. You've got the impact velocities, the launch velocities, uh, the momentum, the kinetic energy, everything is tracked on every shot individually. And that way we can go into the database and start extracting things. Okay, we want all the shots that were shot from a 30 degree impact angle that hit a rib on entrance and, a, and the offside rib. And it'll give us all those that we can do comparisons of all those shots. So we can pull out all sorts of specifics, um, which is gonna give us a lot more information. So in my real real world job, I, I have dabbled in research um, when I was in, in college. And I know one of the things that you aim for in research is replication and replication of exactly the same thing. Well, I, I know that in, in archery, it, even though a lot, at least for me, I know I'm trying to do exactly the same thing every time, but things change, whether it's a gust of wind or, uh, you know, one broadhead might have a, you know, weigh a little bit more, a little bit less. Uh, the arrow might be a little bit, I'm just curious how you keep all that stuff, um, as consistent as possible. The animal, now, you know, as time goes on, it's it's it, like you were talking about the rigor mortis. How do you, how did you guys work to keep that as consistent as possible so that you're 
you know, when you're replicating, you're getting similar results. Yeah, well, the, the uh, rigor mortis part was, was pretty easy by confining our shots to within 30 minutes of when the animal's put down. So that was a uh, consistent factor in there. Now, all of the research we're doing is what's known as outcome-driven research. Now, most people have gone through, you know, high school and college science classes, and they think totally in terms of laboratory science, repeatability. Outcome-driven studies are totally different in the factor that you use large volumes of data and you're looking at the outcome and then going backwards and say, okay, this is what really happened. Now, why did it happen? Instead of setting up a hypothesis ahead of time and then testing that hypothesis, you're just looking at the outcomes and then working backwards from that. That's the way all medical research is done. Uh, you know, so the medical community, anyone involved there will be uh, quite familiar with outcome outcome-driven studies. Uh, test pilots, same thing. Uh, an airplane is designed by engineers. I mean, probably the finest engineering lab in the world is the Skunk Works with uh, Lockheed Martin. Yet, when they get finished, supposedly everything's perfect. They still have to take that plane out, put it in the real world, and look at the outcome results. As far as I know, they've never had a plane they didn't have to make modifications to. So laboratory science doesn't always tell you what real world results are going to be. And when we're looking at our study study data, what we had in, in the original up to when I, I had to stop testing, uh, you're looking at well better than 5,000 shots. So that's a massive amount of data. Uh, and particularly when you're tracking so many factors in it. And so we can look at a lot of different things in there. And the very fact that you're doing so many of them helps average out all of these variables, minor variables you're talking about, like wind conditions, things like that. Um, so that was basically what the study is. But outcome-driven studies give you more real-world results than laboratory studies do. And we'll discuss a little bit of that. I'm, I'll do a little lead-in uh, of why we concentrated so much on uh, things like error penetration, uh, more so than anything else, and uh, give you an idea of, of what we were looking for and why, why it was important. Awesome. So, uh, I don't know, you may have, might have said this, I apologize. You're going to have to forgive my voice cracking. Oh. Having a lot of sinus problems because the cedar trees, we had warm weather up till day before yesterday. All the cedar trees had pollen. And my sinus has just gone berserk. <laughs> oh, I completely understand that. So and I apologize. You might have said this. I had to close my door because the dog was going crazy. But um, the animals that you tested on, can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about those? Well, it started out, of course, the tall study was a variety of animals. Uh, as we progressed from that, we looked at bigger and bigger animals uh, because that was one of the goals I wanted to do was be able to make it. Uh, find equipment that was made it truly satisfactory and ethical to hunt the really big animals where you would have uh, you know the high frequency success that I wanted to see out of bow hunting before I thought it was really where people should be going and doing it and uh, 
once we got to that point, virtually all the testing was done on buffalo, either Cape buffalo, when I was in Africa, or the Asian buffalo. Um, but in the intermediate years in there, we had testing on uh, zebra and kudu and the bigger antelope animals. So we went from small animals in the tall study, uh, which were mostly warthogs, impalas, inyalas. Uh, we did have a few kudu and, and zebra in there, but that was basically smaller animals. And, uh, and well, the way you're going to make your air setup better is to progress to better animals. And as your setup gets better, you need bigger animals to test though. Because anything that's going to work on a Cape Buffalo is certainly going to call it kill anything smaller. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's this was all done in mostly in Australia, right? Uh, well, no, a lot of it was done in Africa. Africa, okay. It's actually, yeah. And, and, you know, when I couldn't be in Africa anymore, then uh, went to Australia. And that was my source of buffalo there, where the Asian buffalo, which are actually a little bit bigger and uh, tougher built than the uh, Cape Buffalo is. Okay, I'm going to ask a very ignorant question, but what on the North American continent would be comparable to any of these buffalo? Is it a, you know something as big as a bison, or is it? Uh... Uh, bison would actually weigh more, but bison is not as heavily built. His bones are not as heavy. Uh, the the rib structure and so forth on the Asian and the Cape buffalo is way heavier than it is on a bison, and the ribs slightly overlap so that you have to hit a rib on every shot which made them a perfect test animal for heavy bone impact right their ribs will average a half inch thick minimum on up to almost an inch thick on a really big trophy sized bull hmm. yes and then the idea of testing on animals now obviously in what we're talking about it only makes sense to test on animals because we use these for killing animals. But uh, I feel like that would be a hard thing to, to get by in today's day and age with so much backlash. I don't know what you want to call it as far as animal rights and different things like that. Did you ever encounter anything like that? Uh, no, not really. Uh, the animals that we hunted on were uh, animals that were being culled anyway for our testing. So uh, we, we never ran into that problem. Um, now we're, we're in the process right now of starting some new testing since we've got the high speed camera, uh, looking at, uh, bone performance and bone deflection shooting just on bones. And we're, we're getting some, uh, uh, fresh beef bones, uh, from a butchering operation. And so we'll be using those, but that's no meat or anything. In that test, we're looking just at bone and bone deflection of arrows and how the different broadheads are going to hold up, things like that. Uh, we've also got access to uh, some hogs to do uh, uh, some hog hunting. And uh, we're trying to do that as hunted animals. Uh, and from there, we'll, when we have funding enough, we'll uh, venture back out into Australia for some massive buffalo testing. Now, uh, Rob Nielsen, who's president of the foundation, uh, did make one trip to Africa and did some testing on buffalo last year. And he's going on another one this year 
if the world doesn't fall apart. Um, and he's going to try to do uh, hippo and buffalo and do some testing on both of those. But he's going to hunt them with a bow and then try to do the testing on them uh, as soon as the animal's down. So the, we'll, we're picking up some data that way. And uh, hopefully we'll pick up a lot more as, as we end up with more money in the foundation. That'll help. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Money always helps, right? So, Absolutely. Makes let, everything easy. <laughs> we'll go ahead and get started on the, the 12 factors or however you want to, um, you know, give us the breakdown oh, of your right. research. I, I'm going to be honest. I started to go through the website and I was going to research. I was going to research your research just so we could talk. And I realized very quickly that it was going to take me about three months to read all that. So yeah, it, there's a lot of it there. <laughs> <laughs> and and we're, we're sort of going to take you down the rabbit hole, but just far enough for you to peek around it. Literally some of those factors, uh, we, you know, various members of the foundation have done presentations where we look at just one factor and can run well over an hour just discussing on one factor. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's pretty lengthy. Yeah. And so any, uh, any listeners or if, if you're listening to this, you can pull them up on, on the Ashby foundation's mm-hmm. website, uh, all the, the 12 factors. So if don't worry, you're not going to miss anything. We, we can get you caught back up there. So. Yeah. Uh, now as we get started into this, I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to go through some stuff and, I'll come to periodic breaks and I'll ask you, you know, from questions there, we'll discuss that. Cause like I've kind of got it outlined in my mind of, uh, of how to run through this stuff. But there is a little bit of stuff that I uh, literally want to read because I got direct quotes. And some of this is, is a little background on why we focus so much on what we do uh in the 12 factors and these first quotes are from an fbi white paper from september 26 2014 and it was titled fbi trading division justifies nine millimeter caliber selection i think i've got four quotes out of there the first one is handgun stopping power is simply a myth end of quote well, I'll guarantee you that well over 95% of what one reads in magazines, sees on the internet, or hears about from most bow hunters about error of broadhead effectiveness on big games is also a myth. And it's mostly the effect of years of marketing hype from industry and industry-sponsored bow hunters. The next quote was the second or excuse me, the single most important factor in effectively wounding a human target is to have a penetration to a scientifically valid depth. And then from a second FBI white paper, handgun penetration testing report, quote, lastly, one of the most factual and conclusive statements you will ever hear on handgun wounding ballistics. Kinetic energy does not wound. Temporary cavity does not wound. The much discussed shock of bullet impact is a fable and knockdown power is a myth. The critical element is penetration. The bullet must pass through the large blood bearing organs. 
Too little penetration will get you killed. Given desirable and reliable penetration, the only way to increase bullet effectiveness is to increase the severity of the wound. Any bullet which will not penetrate through vital organs from less than optimal angles is not acceptable. End of quote. Now that's exactly what the studies have consistently shown about air lethality ever since the original Atal study in the 80s. If you look in that report, there's a direct quote in there that says the number one reason for a non-lethal hit on big game is inadequate air penetration. Now, hunters have known this probably for centuries, but in his article for Hunting Errors, uh, which was published in East Sylvan Archer, in 1943, Fred Bear wrote, a deer can be killed with most any combination if no heavy bones are struck. But what is needed is something that will crash through where the going is tough. In Hunting the Hard Way, Howard Hill refers to the success or failure of any given hit. And he says, quote, all else being equal, Penetration is the name of the game. Uh, sort of a final thought on that is that no bow hunter has ever lost an animal because his error penetrated too much. Penetration is the thing we need to be really honing in on. And that's why all of our 12 factors are geared to penetration. Now, back to our original white paper. Another quote, LEOs, which stands for law enforcement officers, missed between 70 and 80% of the shots fired during a shooting incident. Now, based on the hundreds of videos that the foundation has access to, and I don't know the exact number, but it's certainly over 200, uh, for game, shot with arrows. Very, very few arrows hit the big game exactly where it was aimed or intended. That's that less than optical angle, optimal angle they were talking about. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> because bow hunters are human and animals are going to move before air impact. In fact, out of all of those videos, we have exactly one video where no animal reaction at all is visible prior to air impact. And that's a video of a white-tailed deer shot from the ground at about 20 yards, but it's in a very high crosswind situation. And I think the, the deer heard absolutely nothing. The wind was just too high, too much noise, and it just didn't know the air was coming. Didn't see anything, didn't hear anything. But that's the only one we've got where the animal doesn't move. So I don't care how good a shot you are. I don't think anyone, any bow hunter, can guarantee that he's going to hit that animal where he intends to hit it. Uh, the animal's got to vote in that too. Yeah, and I would I would agree with you 100% because I think one of the things is we have to be realistic with ourselves, right? And no matter how good of an archer you think you are, if you're if you still – are getting the shakes in the tree and that kind of stuff. That's uh, 
that makes you human. And, and it's for me personally, when I go out, I feel a lot more confident with a setup like your 12 factor arrow because I know I'm human and I know I might not have four hours a day to practice and be perfect and make sure everything's just absolutely, you know, perfect on the shot. I just feel a lot more confident than with the, the heavier, heavier arrow setup. So. Oh, absolutely. That's uh and everybody's that way. If there was no excitement in hunting, why would you be hunting? Right. We, we don't have to hunt to eat. We can go to the grocery store. So we're not like primitive, man. We don't have to do it. We do it because it, it excites us. Right. Okay. Back to our white paper. I got one more quote out of there. Okay. Contemporary projectiles since 2007 have dramatically increased the terminal effectiveness of many premium line law enforcement projectiles. And they're talking about the newer bonded core bullets and the monoliths and things like that, that uh, have greatly increased the terminal effectiveness of bullet performance. But unlike bullets, most of the currently produced error systems don't represent an increase in terminal effectiveness. Indeed, in our testing, they represent a decrease in terminal effectiveness even when compared to the air systems of, you know, just a few years ago, 50 years. That looks like a few to me, but <laughs> may not to everybody else. Uh, what we're going to do today is, is talk about showing you how to construct a truly premium hunting error. One that really will increase the error lethality by improving both error penetration and the overall terminal performance. And we'll discuss each of the 12 major factors that contribute to error penetration and error lethality that we've defined in those 27 years of field test testing from those 5,000 plus shots into real animals. Okay. Sounds now, good. Any, any questions through there before we go to the next section? I'm just, I'm taking it all in. Paul, I don't, do you have anything? No, all, I don't. All crickets. <laughs> Oh no, we're gonna have some questions for you. I don't want to interrupt the flow, so okay. I guess you know I, I will I will I will follow up just just real quick off of what we just talked about uh, wounding weight rate research. I, I read some articles uh, by an anti. It was actually by an anti bow hunting um, organization, and they 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 were claiming that wounding rates uh, in the U.S. for big game was fifty four percent. Do you think that's accurate? Yes. Okay. Very simple answer. Yeah, that's it. Uh, there, that's there it. There have that's... been some studies that showed lower percentages. But you have to question those because they were sponsored by the archery industry, financed by them. Uh, there are a lot of studies that were done earlier uh, by game departments. There were some here in Texas. There were some up in Wisconsin up in that part of the country, and all of them came up with a 50% or approximately 50% wounding loss rate. And just talking to the people with fish and game here uh, in, in Texas, they, uh, they think that's very accurate. Uh, I know when I guided in Africa that that was accurate for the, for the bow hunters that I guided. So uh, it's, uh, I, I would say that's quite accurate that it probably is around that, but it doesn't have to be. You know, we can, I, I like, 
we discussed before in our earlier uh, podcast, you know, in, in my hunted animal database, for the last 25 years I hunted, I had 627 animals killed and four animals hit and not recovered. So that's a really good wound loss rate. Actually, it's better than what I have for firearms. So it's very, very good. Very good. That's that's it. That's why we're here. Okay. Uh, let's keep, yeah, I love it. Let's keep rolling. Okay. Now, there's no question that getting the maximum amount of, of air penetration and reliability under all the shot conditions you might encounter is an advantage to any bow hunter. But use of a 12-factor error, or at least an error incorporating as many of the 12 factors as one can, offers an especially important advantage to two classes of bow hunters. Those who hunt the largest species of big game and those who either by choice or necessity use lower poundage bows and or have shorter drawings. Now, with commonly used arrows, uh, either uh, or both a lower poundage draw weight bow or a shorter than average draw length presents a greater challenge in achieving error penetration. And that's even more critical when we get that hit that's, as they said, a less than optimal angle. Now, testing has shown that incorporating the 12 factors into the destruction of one's hunting errors can more than triple the average penetration achievable in real tissues, outcome-driven in real tissues, than that achieved by what's commonly used, common error setups. Now, think for a minute what that implies. That's 15 inches of penetration instead of five, or 30 inches penetration instead of 10. And that's just tripling it. And looking at the average outcomes, we can more than triple the average penetration. Because those 12 factor errors are penetration maximized, it'll increase the penetration under all shot conditions, even those where the error impacts on a heavy bone or where extreme amounts of error penetration required to reach the vital organs, such as a hard quartering angle shot. Now, just how effective is such an error setup? During the Asian Buffalo testing, uh, 2007-2008, using such a penetration maximized error system from a 40-pound bare formula silver recurve target bow, again, shooting from 20 yards distance, we achieved a 100% frequency of the error penetrating the, the heavy on side ribs and achieving a double lung hit. And that was for 30 consecutive shots. And that was with a 27 inch draw length. Okay, so let's go back on that. We've got a 40, yeah. 40 pound draw weight, 27 yeah. inch draw length. Seven inch draw. And you tested on the water buffalo and you got yes. double lung shot 30 out of 30 times. Yes. Now that isn't all the shots. We've, we were also running this 
uh, we were doing threshold testing. So these were penetration maximized errors. One of that factors would be mass weight above heavy bone threshold. We were shooting these against matching external dimension errors that didn't meet all of the qualifications. Mostly, uh, and in this case, it was all of them, the only difference were the others were below threshold. So it was actually in the, in the threshold testing uh, that these 60 shots were taken. So, uh, but, but that was all of the ones that had all 12 factors. Actually, I take that back. Those were 11 factor errors because they had parallel shafts. We didn't have a tapered shaft on them. They had every other feature in there. Were they carbon fiber arrows or were they wooden? Carbon fiber. Okay. They were all mm-hmm. carbon fiber arrows. Okay. Hmm. And, you know, consider consider for a moment what those penetration maximized arrows out of that 40-pound recurve had to do. They had to pen- penetrate a full inch of an extremely tough fibrous mud-encrusted hide, three inches or so of meat, sinew, fascia, and well over a half inch of very solid bone before ever reaching the thorax. Now think of what that type of terminal performance would equate to if you're hunting North American game, deer, pigs, elk, brown bear, moose, whatever you want to hunt in North America. That extrapolating that using a penetration maximized error, a 40 pound recurve will take anything in North America with no problem at all. You got any questions there? Um, it's just incredible. I'm just processing it all. So take, I apologize, but yeah. That's all right. Oh yeah. We'll, we'll just move right on. Okay. Now we're getting in closer to the 12 factors here and all of these 12 factors. And I want you to remember developing shots into fresh tissues on real animals. Now you look around the internet today and you see all this mass of on YouTube, people testing against cinder blocks and cardboard and aluminum plates. And uh, the newest fad has been ballistic gel. So I got a quote here I want to read too out of another white paper. It's called How to Properly Interpret Ballistic Test Results. And it should make people think, I had tried ballistic gel before, and it does not correlate with tissue penetration. We just finished repeating that with compounds, and it doesn't correlate with tissue. So why is it so popular? Because people see it done with guns, so they're going to take stick errors into it. Does this it... quote out of this white paper is really interesting. Okay. It says, if you were to take a pork roast and try to push your finger into it, you basically could not cause the finger to perforate the meat unless you were very, very strong. But I can poke my finger into natural ballistic gelatin relatively easily, and I can poke it into clear gel with a bit more effort. Now, I can take a hunk of clear gel 
and tear it apart with my hands. But I would have great difficulty in getting meat to do that, except where it might separate along various muscle groups. Continuing the quote, the reason this distinction is important is that when amateur testers point to disruption in a block as proof that ammunition is effective, they are flatly incorrect. Disruption seen in jail is a result of cutting or tearing, and it does not correlate well with the cutting or tearing that happens in real tissues from the same ammunition. That disruption might look cool, but it is not representative of anything that occurs in tissues. But basically, when you see these tests on YouTube or anywhere else on the internet, you can disregard them. They mean absolutely nothing, as does, you know, I've, I've tried everything in the world. I've tried plywoods, metal drums, looking for something we could test in that would give us a predictable outcome that we would get in tissues, you know, that would correlate in some way. And I never found it. And I tried for all those 27 years to find something. And it, you just, there, there are so many variables in uh, animal tissues that you just can't find anything that really correlates with the penetration results you've got. The only way you can do valid testing is outcome driven. Take a huge mass of shots and then look at what average outcomes and what outcomes occur under specific hit conditions. And that's about the only way you can get any kind of reliable results. So with the ballistic gels and stuff, is there any validation for them when we're talking about uh, firearms or is it same idea? And I, I've never really thought about it, right? I've seen this stuff on Mythbusters and different shows yeah. or whatever. And it's like, oh, cool. And you can see the bullet going in and it's doing all the you know vibrations and all that kind of stuff. But it really isn't going to be the same as, as no, shooting bones in there. About, you can take ballistic gel and just tear apart with your hand. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't have, you know, one of the big things that's missing is uh, when you shoot into tissues, particularly on a living animal, but even on a freshly downed animal, uh, you're shooting into a blood-suffused environment. Now, blood lubricates. If you've ever had blood on the handle of your knife when you're trying to skin an animal, you know how slick it is. And it's, well, actually, you're shooting into a lubricated environment instead of something that has extreme amounts of drag to it. The, the ballistic gelatin, what it really shows is cavitation, temporary cavitation, uh, the effects of the transfer of energy into an expandable tissue. And that's really what it's designed to test. Gotcha. And so you can put an ice cream feed camera there and you can see the the stretch cavity that's formed. Gotcha. And that's, that's a, what it's really intended for. There was a popular video last summer uh, by, by a group on, on YouTube and they, strapped together uh you know 15 cardboard boxes and we're shooting broadhead setups and arrow setups into these sheets of cardboard and the, and the heavy arrow setup they did they did shoot a couple of those i i, I can't remember specifics I, I didn't watch it's been a couple months since i've seen it but the heavy arrow did perform better but it wasn't markedly better than 
and some of these other other setups. yeah it just doesn't it just doesn't give you a, a a comparable outcome to what you would see in tissue like i said when we're doing in tissue we can get triple the penetration but i don't know of any artificial test medium that you can get to replicate that but yet it occurs over and over now we've got all of these years of data that's been accumulated from hunters uh you know particularly african hunters that uh show this enormous amount of increase in penetration that you can get uh, with penetration maximized errors yeah i mean i guess you know your, your whole thing outcome driven it's down to animals in the field that's the <laughs> that's the yeah, there's just that's... nothing else that'll work except that yeah Makes you know, sense. You, you, that test pilot couldn't test his airplane but taking it out in the water <laughs> yeah. right just wouldn't work makes perfect sense it does <clears throat> okay uh well we're getting down to the rating of the penetration factors now an important thing to remember is that an arrow is always flying from the time it leaves the bow it flies through the air, it flies through the skin of the animal, it flies through the meat, flies through the bones. If it exits the animal, it flies through the air again, hits the dirt, it flies through the dirt until it stops. All it changes is the medium is flying through. And that's an important concept to keep in mind, is that that air flies regardless. So all of the factors of flight dynamics apply to it at all stages. Now, the ratings that we have for the 12 factors are based on when we look at all, all hits, regardless whether it was all soft tissue, you know, whether it hit light bone, heavy bone, whatever. They are rated in the order of their importance. Now, the first two factors never shift, but the other factors can change places in ranking depending on shot conditions. For instance, the number 12 factor is uh, arrow weight that's above the heavy bone threshold. Well, that's not really important unless you hit a heavy bone. But when you hit a heavy bone, it moves from the number 12 position to the number three position. When you so say- So they can shift depending upon the type of hit. When you say- but when they're rated, when you look at where they are in there, that's if you look at a huge number of hits where are they going to come out on the average? Now, taken individually, each factor boosts the error's penetration potential. And omitting or diminishing a factor reduces the error penetration, at least under some hit conditions. And it's going to be impossible to anticipate ahead of time what your hit's going to be because an animal gets a vote in it too. He can move and other things can go wrong. It's amazing how fast a twig can grow up in front of your arrow. Uh, I, had, I had that happen to, to me the other day. Yeah, which factor is going to be the important one? You were saying something? Uh, I had the twig that climbed up in front of me the other day. Uh, I had oh, yeah, that. I've had that too. Yeah, it was, and, I, and I swear it wasn't there. It wasn't <laughs> until it was uh, swinging back and forth. and like, uh-oh. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, based on the fact that we can't anticipate the hit, maximizing the successful 
hits requires incorporating as many of the penetration enhancing factors as possible. Now, the penetration factors compound each other. For example, if you've added a factor that, that shows a 20% increase, and you originally were getting 10 inches of penetration on the average, you'll now get 12. And if you add a second factor that gives another 20% gain, well, that second factor is going to give you an increase in penetration of 2.4 inches because it's going to be 20% of 12 inches, not 20% of 10 inches. So all of these factors compound each other. So keep that in mind as we look at the factors. And it's important to just think of the factors as a toolbox. Nobody's telling anyone they have to use anything, everything in there. If you want to get the most possible out of your error, which, like I said, is important for the guys that hunt the really big animals or the people that shoot the light bows and the short draw, they, they want to try to pack as many factors in as they can because they need all the help they can get to get adequate penetration. But if somebody wants to go there and pick and choose, anything that you add to your current air setup is going to make it a better air setup. Got if it. it's just one thing, if it's just a, a change in the broadhead or a change in the structural integrity of your error, that's going to improve your error setup and give you a better performing error. Okay, got any questions before we start delving into the well, to the factors? One of the things that I'm thinking about is you keep talking about the heavy bone. If you were to hit a yes. heavy bone, hit a heavy bone. Is there a difference in like, when you say heavy bone, are we talking a shoulder versus a rib or is it all the same? Bone is bone. But it depends on the animal. Okay. Uh, some, some animals have heavy ribs. Uh, some don't. You know, it depends somewhat on the size of the animal. But uh, you take, heck, one of these little Texas white-tailed does. If you hit them in the ball joint of the shoulder, that's a heavy bone. Right. You know, if, if goodness knows, and animals can't switch that fast. I've had it happen a few times. You end up shooting at the front of them and hit them in the rear end. Well, the pelvic girdle is a really tough bone. So is the head of the femur. You know, those things happen. But if you want to turn those kind of hits into a successful hit, you need something that can handle that heavy bone when that hit occurs. Right. Okay. Okay. I, I think I'll I'm stop good. At, I'll stop at the end of each factor for any questions you've got. Got it. Okay. The first factor is the structural integrity of the arrow. And that is the most important factor you've got. And it applies to every aspect of the air, from the tip of the broadhead to the knot. Even a very tiny tip bend results in an average penetration loss of 14%. And I'm talking about being so small, you just it's just barely the tip of the air. And just, to, just as for having a truly sharp broadhead is structural integrity should be a given requirement for every hunting area that you hunt with. It's a must have error design feature. And without that, no other factor can be relied upon. Your error flight can be perfect. You can have everything else in place, but if it breaks, when it hits something, all else is lost. 
Yeah, I think this one makes pretty good sense. Go I mean, ahead. Question time. <laughs> but it makes pretty good sense. You don't want to send something that's got flaws in it, uh, hurling down down range, right? You want something that's well put together. I guess the only question I would have is when you talk about a small tip, you know, being bent or, uh, you know, how, how do you go about making sure that, you know, all that is per- perfectly intact and structurally integ- structural integrity well, is in it, there? it comes from shooting... Uh, you know, really strout, strong broadheads. Uh, if if a broadhead, one thing you can look at, if a broadhead so, hits something where it's got to give, you're better off statistically to have it break. You know, break the tip off rather than bend. A bend redirects the arrow. And as the arrow redirects, the whole shaft is going to make that redirection. That's going to cause that shaft to push very hard on one side of the wound channel increasing the pressure against the tissues and drastically increasing shaft drag. The shaft drag is a major factor in penetration. And, you know, the, the redirecting is where you really, really lose penetration. You know, but that integrity applies if you bend a, a blade on a mechanical broadhead, and that happens all the time. Uh, hit any bone of any kind, you're usually going to end up with a really bent blade. Well, that's going to cause uneven drag on the broadhead. It's going to redirect somewhere. It's going to have all that shaft drag. You know, you just can't have any kind of structural failure along the whole era. You can't have the an aluminum insert bend. You can't have the screw in adapter bend. Uh, you know, everything has got to stay intact or all else is lost. Right. So I guess my question on the bending tip, that's just you have to be good at bent at sharpening your tips or your, your broadheads. You, you have to, yeah. Make sure that Most you're using Most of your really stuff. strong broadheads are going to be a rigid, a rigid you know, resharpenable broadhead. Right. It's, it's hard to find anything else that will stand up, uh, particularly to the heavy impacts. And made When good- they don't hit much, you know, they can perform real fine. But most of them, that's where most failures are is uh, on bone, and sometimes it's, it's very light bone. Uh, failures even on pig ribs, which are not terribly heavy, are pretty common. Right. Very good. Okay. All right, we're going to the second one. Sounds good. Which is perfect error flight. It never changes either. Once you've got structural integrity, you've got to get your flight of your error perfect. It is the enabler for all other factors. It delivers more usable force on target. If you've got erratic error flight, you're going to waste a lot of the energy that the error absorbed from the bow. And ideally you want to conserve, we don't have much energy to work with. A 22 long rifle has way more energy than any error does. Nowhere even comes close. So we've got to conserve every little bit of energy we possibly can so that we can let these other penetration enhancing factors work. Conserve what energy is there, which is essentially what we're trying to do all the way through. It'll just allow all of the additional factors to work at full efficiency. Now, poor error flight just squanders all of your error force. And like I said, you should never spare any effort, 
or expense, whatever it takes to get perfect air flight. It is a must have feature. Even if you've got every other in fact factor in place, without good air flight, you're still gonna have poor air performance. However, if you ignore the other design features, all you end up with is a perfect flying air is still going to perform poorly on some hits, which is going to negate your perfect flight advantages. Questions again? No, but I I think that the first two are pretty. They're not. You can't argue them, right? No, they're they're not controversial and not much argument to them. Yeah, nobody's going to tell you to to shoot a cracked arrow or uh, to be shooting sideways, right? Break apart. Yeah, yeah, everybody says that. Yeah, right. people shoot them. <laughs> yep well that's true um so yeah making sure your bow's tuned on, on the second one having that arrow fly that makes perfect sense like if you're throwing a punch you don't want you know you're trying to get as much of that weight behind it instead of coming from the side or whatever so yep you want to come straight very good so okay on this number three i think this is where there perhaps is some debate oh yeah you'll get some controversy out of a lot of people yeah mostly people that have ever tried it or they've tried it in they tried it in ballistic gel or cardboard. Right. Or, or, or a 55 gallon drum or something like that. Cinder block. Okay. First, before we get really into it, let's define what they are. Now, we've got normal FOC, which is uh, 12% or less. And that's historically been there. Uh, virtually all eras were in that range. You know, back when I started, most of the hunting errors were 10 or 12%. And most target errors were 6 to 10%. Uh, that was about the typical. Oh, that's why it's normal FOC. And Dr. Ashby, yeah. do you want to you just give us a F, what FOC is? Oh, okay. And, we can go back and do that. Yeah. Now, this is one of those things we can spend over an hour on. Okay. FOC is uh, weight forward of center. And it, it is actually what the way we do it, we use the center of balance of the era as opposed to the geographic center of the era. And the difference between them will give you how far the weight is forward of the center of the era. Now, FOC is actually an aeronautical engineering term. And it has nothing to do with where the, the the geographic center is. It's the distance between the balance point and the center of pressure when an error or a projectile is in flight. And the higher the FOC, the more stable an object is in flight. And remember, our error is in flight all the time. Whether it's going through an animal or going through the air, it's still flying. So we we want stable flight because if it's stable, it's harder to redirect. And the less stable it is, the easier it is to redirect. And there's some other advantages too. So that's why this thing can go on and on trying to explain what FOC is. But the way we measure it is strictly convenience thing, just like we measure the static spine of an arrow that'll tell you the stiffness of it when you put it between a two centers so far apart, put a set amount of weight on it. Uh, it's basically so we can duplicate it. 
You know, if we know what it is, we can set it up and duplicate it. But when we say 12% FOC or 15% FOC, that's not truly 10 or 12% FOC. It's a relative term because you could only determine that true FOC when it was flying. And that's going to depend on resistance. You know, and, and resistance is going to vary. Like when we fly through the air and we fly through the tissue, you've got totally different resistance. Right. FOC is going to change. Right. But it's just a convenience factor that we use when we measure normal FOC. But basically it means the weight forward center. And if someone wants to look in the in the papers in there, there's uh oh, which one is it? I think it's the preamble to the 2007 updates. There's a whole paper uh, in the studies just on FOC, explaining what it is and what it does, uh, which is a good place to look if they really want to find out all about FOC. Several pages long, but I think it'll answer the questions anybody's got, and they can find that on the foundation website. Yep, and I know if you've got questions on what your FOC is, there's uh, it's probably on your website, but I know just Googling, you know, how to determine it, you can measure it out and figure it all that kind of stuff. It's not that hard. Yeah, so. yeah, and there's calculators. That yep. Help you calculate it and, uh, you know, all sorts of things out there to help you out with it. It's funny, though. We we asked Troy what FOC was, and he had a different answer. So uh, I think it was fear of change was what, what he came up with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He uses that all the time. Yeah. Because a lot of people, uh, you know, he gives that every, a lot of people are hesitant. To even try it, uh, and you find people out there on the internet that'll say the same thing. Yep. Well, normal is work, you know, it worked for my grandfather, still works for me. Why change anything? Or you'll hear, oh, you get high FOC, they nose dive, they get too heavy at the front. Well, that doesn't really happen. They actually fly better, they have a more parabolic flight than uh, a normal FOC era. But anyway, that's yeah. getting you, that's getting into the like I said, down the rabbit hole there. Yeah. That's why we can talk for hours about <laughs> FOC. Okay, our, our second out is back where we were. At or below 12% is normal FOC. From 12 to 19%, we studied to find as high FOC. Now, the reason we used 19% is when I did the uh, looking for penetration gain, strictly from FOC, the first place I could document a consistent gain in penetration that I could attribute solely to FOC was 19% FOC. So when you hit 19%, it's when you start seeing a definite penetration gain in, in uh, just from FOC. And we did that testing by using just like we did the testing I was discussing before, they're absolutely identical in external profile. Same broadhead, same shaft diameter, everything about them the same, except for the weight distribution. And it takes some tuning tricks. The one variable external might be the length of the air, because sometimes we had to vary the length to be able to tune the air. But the shaft diameter would be the same, and everything else about them would be identical when we're trying to find these comparisons for the different era setups. And from 19 up to 30% was studied to find as extreme FOC. And above 
we study defined as ultra extreme FOC. And the reason we did that is back when we were doing that testing, it was extremely difficult to exceed 30%. Uh, in times it, it involved having special components made. Now you can go out and buy stainless steel and even titanium, whatever, all sorts of components that weren't available to us back then. When I needed steel adapters, I had to have them made. You know, go have a machinist turn them out custom. Uh, now you can just buy them all sorts of places. And, and actually with a little work, most people can now get 30% or above FOC if they really, really want to work at doing it. Now, extreme FOC does more than any other defined feature except flight quality to maximize the effect other penetration factors offer. So it also is an enabler of other factors. All extreme FOC tests show very high penetration gains. Remember, these gains are progressively cumulative. We have enough data, or I did by the end of the 27 years, uh, that we can quantify at least to a degree, and at least for the high performance errors that have most of the other penetration enhancing factors, how much gain we can get. And it's anywhere from 40 to upwards of 60% penetration gain just with FOC. So that's a pretty healthy gain from one error factor. And a lot of that has to do, again, before we go down the rabbit hole, uh, with, with where lever arms are and the fact you can get the forward lever arm uh, shorter and stiffer and it penetrates easier. And you can get the rear lever arm much wider in relation to the rest of the era. So you get a, a shorter frequency of oscillations of the era. It can get really complex, but uh, basically, you know, I, I, enough here to get people interested in looking it up, and they can find out all about FOC and its effects. Yeah. Uh, I've got any questions. Well, so, that, I mean, you're talking, if I'm just trying to recap this, and this is very, very unscientific, but if I was to take my 100-grain broadhead and I went to 150-grain broadhead, that's going to improve my penetration in some capacity. Uh, no, 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 you got to be careful there. Okay. You can't just take a broad head off and put another one on because then you've got to look at the spine of the era. You've got to look at the flight of the era. And, and a lot of people get the wrong impression of, of what FOC does because they've tried exactly that. Oh, I take my hundred grainer off and I'm going to put a 200 grainer on there. Oh, that doesn't penetrate any better. Well, no wonder your flight's gone to crap. You know, your spine is way off. Uh, so, you know, you have to be, you have to have those other factors all in place up there. You know, you've got to have that perfect flight. So you can't just willy-nilly change a point and say it's going to improve it. You, you could you could add weight in the insert and get more FOC, not change your broadhead, and get more penetration. Gotcha. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Hey, perfect. That's why that's why we're here, right? Asking the questions. That's it. <laughs> so, I hope you can stump me on one. Well, that'll, <laughs> that'll, that'll give that'll, you something to go back and test. Yes, right. That'll uh, <laughs> be a surprise. So, 
so some of the some of the criticism of the of the high foc area or arrows um when you get into you know six seven hundred grains is is just an arrow setup if it's that high it's 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 drastically going to decrease the speed and everyone you know always says i get it's kinetic energy and the speed and all those types so what's the what's the relationship to and, and, and dumb it down for someone like me, Ed. I'm not a well, good is, is, bow is, hunter is, at all. So it's, it's weight that's uh, slowing you down. It's not not necessarily uh, FOC. Uh, you can change the FOC without changing the overall weight of your arrow. You know, it, it, if you look around, you, you find uh, uh, one of the very light grain French uh, target shafts. I use quite a few of those. In the testing, when I was trying, particularly trying to get the ultra extreme FOC, because uh, I could get shafts that were 6.4 grains per inch, and uh, and get them to work uh, because they were stiff enough shafts to do it. Uh, but they were they were at a target shaft. Now you've got to look again: Are we compromising structural integrity? Well, in the amount of data we've got so far, actually you're not. You're actually improving structural integrity by lightening that back shaft, because when the error hits, the front portion of the error slows down very quickly, and the back of the error is trying to push. Well, a lot of the damage occurs because the heavy shaft at the back is pushing with enough force, trying to move forward faster than the broad head is or the front of the error, and you end up damaging the shaft. You you balloon out the end of the shaft. And uh, so a lot of damage occurs that way. As we got into lighter shafts, the weight was light enough that we weren't getting that anymore. And that was without a collar on. If you had a protective collar on, I think they would have done, well, I don't know how they could have done any better. We didn't damage any of them in the testing. But we don't have hundreds of shots for that yet, which is what we need to be able to say, okay, definitively, this is the answer. But we hope to have that. It's going to take a long time to get enough data, but we'll have it down the road. Anything else you think of on that? Or I hope I answered your question. No, yeah, you 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 definitely did. So I think we're on the. I think okay. Fifth, number five. Four. 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 This is broadhead mechanical advantage. Now a broadhead is a simple machine. It, you can think of it as, as inclined planes. And that gives it a, a mechanical advantage just like you would have done in your high school uh, science or physics class. I, I was just going to say this is like eighth grade science all over again or so, something. <laughs> a higher mechanical advantage literally increases the work your era does with whatever useful force is available. That's why here we are conserving force again. We're trying to get more work out of what force we've got. Now the degree of gain you're going to get is going to depend on which broadheads you're comparing. So I can't tell you on this, you're going to get X or Y percentage of increase. It depends on the difference between the heads you compare. When you go up to that higher mechanical advantage, you're going to gain more work out of the same amount of energy or the same amount of work conserving some of that energy for more penetration. 
Now, broadhead mechanical advantage has more influence on the outcome penetration of a perfect flying, structurally secure error than any other factor except the extreme FOC. So even though I can't give you a percentage, I can tell you that it falls into this bracket that's higher than some of the stuff that falls in that we could quantify. Higher broadhead mechanical advantage is something that's applicable to all eras of all designs. If you go to a higher broadhead mechanical advantage than what you're currently shooting, you will gain penetration. But the more efficient the rest of your area is, the more penetration gain that higher broadhead mechanical advantage is going to give you. So if you can conserve bits and pieces of energy here and there, that extra energy you're going to apply with a mechanical advantage that's going to give you additional work, additional cutting of tissue, additional penetration. Any questions on that one? Does this have anything to do as far as like mechanical broadheads go, or am I just like uh, is nope. completely? It does not. Most mechanical broadheads have about the poorest mechanical advantage of any broadhead you could shoot. Okay, that's what, that's what I was looking for. Advantage yeah. is going to be a very gradual sloping plane. Think of wheelchair ramps. You want something that's long and gradual because you can move from point A to point B over this gradual incline with less energy than you can if that incline is shorter. So the more abrupt the blade encounters the tissues, the lower mechanical advantage it's going to have. So your highest mechanical advantage are going to be those long, narrow two-blade heads. So these short little stubby broadheads that seem to be kind of the rage right now, you know, three, four blade. Um, so the steep yeah. of that, the angle of those of those blades would yep. be too. So you're going to lose just a ton of penetration. You're going to lose some mechanical ahead. advantage. Okay. Most of those are still going to be better than any mechanical that's out there on the market, but it's going to lose a lot compared to a narrow, longer broadhead. Um, I, this might not be relevant, but how does a field point compare to any of this, or is it just completely off different topic? Yeah, it is entirely different. Okay, uh, a, a field point and, and most target points are they're not trying to increase penetration, they just want you to have enough penetration to stick in the target, okay. make it easier to pull them back out. That's one reason that on your field points, you have a kind of a shoulder there with a little tiny point on it. That's that actually creates an increased drag or less efficient mechanical advantage, so they won't penetrate as deep. Okay, that, that makes perfect sense. So a lot of the companies that that are selling just just real quick um, that are selling these broadheads that are specific to kind of this high FOC high you know heavy arrow setup. You know, you've got single bevel and and double bevel. What's the benefit of a single bevel broadhead? That's a factor coming up. We'll get into that in okay. a little more depth. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Okay. Dr. Ashby, one more I just thought of, and maybe, sure. maybe we'll get into this again later, but um, 
the what about the broadheads that have the bleeder blades on them or something? Is that adding more again, more uh, or lower? That's reducing mechanical advantage. Okay. Uh, if you had, uh, say, a, a three blade head that had a three, what they would consider a three to one ratio, which is not really a three to one ratio. It's not a three mechanical advantage anyway. Say each blade is a half inch high from the center line of the arrow, and it's three inches long. Well, if you took one of those, it's a half inch and three inch, that would be six, or a mechanical advantage of six. If you add a second blade, now you're down to advantage of three. Add the third blade, you're down to mechanical advantage of two. Gotcha. So that's why as you add blades, you lose mechanical advantage. Now, one of the things that a lot of people miss, and I heard this from Fred Bear personally, uh, when he designed his original bleeder blades on the Bear razor head, those were made of the old blue steel, like double-edged razor blades used to be made out of. And they were designed to shatter when they hit bone. And that would, as he said, that would let the broadhead form like a normal two-blade broadhead and go ahead and penetrate. The biggest reason he wanted the bleeder blades in there, it was an attempt to open a bigger wound channel in the soft tissue on entrance to reduce shaft drag. And that's out of his own mouth. That was the whole purpose of it. Then people started complaining because, oh, you know, that bleeder blade broke off and I found bits of bleeder blade in my meat. I could have ate that and died. <laughs> and they, of course, gave into this. They started making them out of, you know, stainless steels that would bend but not break. And that destroyed the whole concept. Penetration went just went to pieces. Because yeah. once you bend a blade, it's going to redirect that error or create unequal drag on the error you know, all of which is going to destroy your penetration. But the original concept he had with those breakaway bleeder blades was absolutely a very good uh, concept. But those blades hadn't been available for the last 40 years or more. All of them you've got now are things that won't break so that people don't eat them. Gotcha. <laughs> Alrighty. Okay, our fifth factor. It's pretty straightforward. It's the shaft diameter to ferrule diameter ratio. Now, when you've got a ferrule that's at least 5% larger than the shaft, or vice versa, shaft 5% smaller than the broadhead's ferrule, you gain an average of 10% penetration. Now, with the testing we did then, being smaller than a five or having more than a 5% difference. So it was seven or 8% smaller, 10% smaller than the broadheads ferrule. We didn't see any difference between the five and the 10%. There are a lot of micro shafts now, and we'll be repeating this in our testing to, to look at these smaller shafts and see if anything changes with it. But based on the data we currently have, you, you're going to see this 10% Increase in penetration if the broadhead ferrule is larger than the shaft diameter. Now, we're talking of comparing that to a case where shaft and broadhead have an equal diameter. 
Now, if the shaft is bigger than the broad head's ferrule diameter, the penetration is decreased by an average of 30%. So you're looking at potentially a 40% difference in penetration based on whether the shaft is larger or smaller than the broadhead ferrule. You know, the, the, the bottom takeaway is that you should avoid using an arrow that has a shaft diameter that's greater than broadhead ferrules. You know, it, if, if it's equal to it, okay, you're going to lose 10% penetration. But if that shaft is bigger than the broadhead ferrule, uh, you're looking at potential 30% loss of penetration on the average. Any questions on that one? Uh, I don't know. I'm sitting here looking at my arrow, and I've got the, I don't know if it's the insert or the collar here at the yeah, end. Yeah, well, if you have an outsert, outsert or collar, whatever you want to call it, that's bigger than the broadhead ferrule diameter, that that functions just like having a shaft that diameter. Okay. It should not be bigger than the broadhead ferrule diameter. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm looking at mine. Okay. It's either equal or just very. It's yeah, if the they're same. if they're equal, you're all right. Okay. That, you might lose that ten percent. Probably, like I said, we didn't have collars to test with. Probably you wouldn't lose a full ten percent. That short collar would function much like a long ferrule on a broadhead and the one step down you've got is going to be down to that shaft so you got no lumps or bumps no increases gotcha and once you get that part through you'd be all right yeah why are we'll the shafts tapered define it for sure why are the shafts tapered on a lot of these arrows well Papers coming up too. You get ahead of me. Oh man, I just I'm learning so much, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> so what about what about like these micro? Uh, is that coming up too? The micro diameter. Yeah, we'll shafts? be testing micro shafts because didn't have those tests before, and it'll be interesting to see if that gives any gain because with the shafts that I could that were available to me to test with, uh, it didn't make any difference if it were ten percent smaller than the ferrule or five percent. Uh, you know, it, there was just no difference in the, in the average penetration shown between those. So it, it seemed like that if you were at least 5% different, you were going to gain as much as you were going to possibly gain out of having the shaft smaller than the broadhead ferrule. But we'll find out with the micro shafts as time goes by. Oh, we got to look it. at a lot of other things with micro shafts. And, you know, they've got to be tested totally because uh, they weren't available, and, and I never did any testing with those. And uh, we don't know what's going to happen as far as their structural integrity, all sorts of things with them. But it's we'll a, find out with time. Testing takes time. It's not something you can do quickly. Right. Oh, you mean in today's day and age, we can't just do everything like right right away, snap of a finger? Um, no, when, you're, when you've got to collect huge amounts of data to find out if it's valid or not, there's no no substitution for time. <laughs> right, right. No, and Paul and I were down at the archery show um, there, what, a month ago or so. Those micro-diameter arrows are definitely, they were a hot commodity down there. So, Well, yeah, archery is like everything else, bow hunting. It, it goes through fads. 
And, and those may be a fad or they may not be. They may be actually be something that's, that's really good. Right. Uh, only time's going to tell us on that and, and a lot of testing. And I, I'm hoping that things like hogs are going to be big enough to, uh, to get the definitive amount of data we need on those or whether we're going to have to move up to bigger animals. Hogs are a whole lot easier to get access to down here. You know, there's there's plenty of hogs to shoot. That's what I've heard. And so I'm hoping we'll be able to do some of the testing on those. But we don't know. We actually get into it. Gotcha. All right. Okay. Ready for the next one? Yes, sir. Okay. Number six, or halfway through there, is the aromass. And mass and weight aren't exactly the same thing. Right. When you're doing most of the math involved in figuring things with air of flight, you have to use mass. But for what we're talking about here, you can think of air of mass as being the weight of the air. It, it won't cause any problem. That's essentially what you're going to be talking about. Now, greater air of mass increases your bow's efficiency. Your bow is nothing but an energy sink. It stores at, at full draw, it stores a set amount of energy. And when it's discharged, it's going to transfer some of that energy into the air. The greater the weight of the air, the more energy is going to be absorbed from the bow. That's why putting a heavy air on your bow makes your bow shoot quieter. More of the energy has gone into the air. Less is there to create vibration in the bow and the bowstring and so forth. And the vibration creates the shock in your hand. It creates the sound of the shot. Uh, so, you know, you, you can, that's actually where you can measure bow of, uh, efficiency in there is, is the amount of energy transfer that it gives. But I've tested up to close to 2,000 grains and both off traditional bows and compounds and they will all show an increase in kinetic energy and this is the proper use of kinetic energy of the era uh, as the weight goes up all the way to 2,000 grains. Now there there is a break in there where there's a decrease in the rate of gain where, where the curve makes sort of a bend. Uh, and, and there's some interesting things about that. You know, I would go down the rabbit hole again here. Uh, and, and I would like to do a little more work on it, but, but it seems like there is a arrow weight where your bow efficiency is the highest. Now, I'm not talking about shooting the flattest. I'm talking about where it is steadily increasing at a steady rate the kinetic energy increase as the arrow weight goes up. And then at a certain point, it starts to not gain as much with each increase in arrow weight. And I think that as far as energy transfer, you can actually measure and define the peak point of bow efficiency. And it's really interesting to me that if I look at self-wood longbows, that break in uh, efficiency falls at 10 grains per pound, which goes back to the old rule of thumb of 
oh, you want to shoot 10 grains of, of arrow weight for every pound of uh, draw weight you've got on your bow. And I think that's where it goes back to. And it's probably developed just through trial and error. They found that, hey, you got uh, 10 grains per pound of bow weight. Yeah, that, that shoots pretty good off the bow. You know, the bow doesn't shock my hand as bad. Air flies okay. So, but uh, with some of the modern uh, reflex, deflex longbows, uh, that en energy breakup there is around 16 grains per pound of bow weight. So it, it does vary by type of bow. And it varies by the same thing with compound. The, the type of, and I haven't tested with any of the hyper velocity chem bows, the things they've got now. But uh, it, it was even the same back there with different different bows. Every, every bow had a different point with the error that it seemed to be the most efficient. I'll try to get back out of that, that rabbit hole there. Now, when all else is equal, error tissue penetration is directly proportional to the error's momentum. A momentum, as you know, is the error weight, error mass, technically, times the velocity, not the velocity squared, the velocity. And it measures the forward impetus, the, the forward movement, the forward force on error that must be met by an equal amount of resistance in order for the air to stop. And that's why it correlates with momentum and not with kinetic energy. Penetration correlates uh, with the momentum and not with the kinetic energy. Now, you mustn't confuse that though, to mean that two different errors will penetrate equally just because they have equal momentum. Now, momentum is mass times error velocity. How much of the error's momentum comes from its mass, its weight, and how much is derived from the velocity is also a factor. And as it is with efficiency uh, with which the broadhead will apply it, the momentum. But now, the momentum is a property of the error, and it belongs to the error. And it's carried within the air. And as the air slows during penetration, velocity is shed. But the mass always remains constant. That's why if you took the two errors that have equal momentum, the heavier of the two, the one that derived more of its momentum from the mass, will penetrate deeper because it's going to retain that portion of its momentum for a longer period of time. At equal impact force, it's just going to take that heavy error a longer time to stop. And the result is going to be uh, deeper tissue penetration. Now, I've heard a number of people on the internet raise the argument, yeah, but the faster error travels further in the same time. It's going faster. Well, they're overlooking one little factor. And that's the resistance. As velocity doubles, the resistance increases by a factor of four. In other words, if I have 150 feet per second in a longbow and 300% in a compound, or, or excuse me, 300 feet per second in a compound, 
the arithmetic compound is going to encounter four times as much resistance in the tissue as does the long bowl. That also applies in the air. The error from the compound is going to be slowing at a greater rate. If these are identical errors, at a, at a, it'll slow at a faster rate flying through the air than will the soar when launched off the longbow, just because of the difference in resistance. Now, if we triple the velocity, then the resistance factor would be nine times as great. Now, that's something you people overlook. It takes a minute for it to sink in. Because I'm it, just just seems, it seems speak. logical to them that that faster error in, in the same amount of time is going to penetrate further. But it just doesn't work. I'm going to speak for I feel like a lot of people. Physics is confusing. I'm just going to throw that out there. So. Oh, it is. <laughs> but the results speak for themselves. So I mean, it, like you said, it, it it it's it's a lot to, to digest. And I, you know, I had a conversation with our our you know a, a Botech um, at a shop, and he's just like, just you know, throw your throw your you know your poundage up a few pounds. Your arrow is going to go faster. That's all you need to do. And so that's interesting that the, the, the science shows that a faster arrow is going to create more resistance. So is it, I mean, in modern bows, have we reached kind of the pinnacle of, of speed? I mean, there's a crossbow out there now that shoots 500 feet per second. Is well, that, I mean, we, we, is that we, damaging? We're trying to, to look at some of that because, you know, one, one of the things we've looked at is the data coming back from hunters in Africa, particularly on buffalo. And what we found is that people shooting bows below 70 pound draw weight, compound, these are all compounds, below 70 pound draw weight have a higher incidence of pass through shots on buffalo than people that are shooting 70 pounds or more. So there's, there's, a, there's a, a really popular uh, hunting personality on, online. And his his thing is he's pushing for a hundred pound draw weight bow to shoot elk. So I mean that's like that's unnecessary and, and quite frankly could bore on negligent at that point, right? I mean if, if your resistance is that low, like your penetration is going to drop, 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 drop. I mean, so well, there's you, no advantage into unless you want to shoot really, a two thousand grain really arrow. A lot. You know, go, going up in bow weight is not. Uh, doesn't yield a, a, a lot of benefits to you. You don't gain a lot. But I can you, shoot a heavier arrow, though, the faster I'm shooting. way right? more performance with your, the design of your arrow than you can increase in bow weight. But so so if, I, if I'm if i shooting a 100-pound draw weight, I could shoot a theory. You know, in my mind, it makes sense. But could I shoot that 2,000-grain arrow and just blow oh, through you, you, anything you, you on the face of the earth? You shoot 2,000-grain arrow off of, off of a longbow if you wanted to. Uh, the... Uh, the right aware as I used were 1,286 grains. Now I was shot off a 115 pound longbow, but uh, and you know velocity was not terribly high, but it was enough I didn't have trouble hitting things. You know, 25 yards or so. So it uh, it, it wasn't really. You know, my internal computer handled it. Uh, I have internal sight pins. <laughs> nice. So if I'm if I'm shooting if I'm if I'm an elk hunter in the in the west, and I've got you know a hundred pound draw weight bow and I, I can shoot a massive I mean so I'm I'm going to effectively 
extend the range that I can shoot that bow and that and and, and that arrow specifically, right? Is that how that well, works? Yeah, it's all going to depend on, you know, again, energy transfer out of the bow and the arrow that you're using. You know, there's a lot of variables out there. Uh, I'll give you an example. It's one that the Rocket Man, uh, Daryl Barnett, uses all the time. Uh, he worked a lot on on uh, tank penetrator projectiles, and it's it's just like this resistance thing. They they could take the armor, they knew what they had to penetrate, and they could figure out what it took to penetrate that when it impacted it. Then they have to work backwards to the gun that's going to launch it and the distance so forth it's going to be at. And you know, the minimum difference is four times. In other words, you're going to have to have four times the force back here at launch that you have at impact. And as range increases, it gets even higher. So you're not gaining a lot by going to a 100-pound bow. Uh, that that's all macho stuff. Yeah, uh, there's there's going to be very little gain in shooting that hundred pound bow. I'm gonna keep hammering that point, months. My mind is that's so good my mind is so blown yeah. right now that I'm just it's it's so it's 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 just fascinating. Um, and it, like you said, it's all macho stuff, and and it's just it's all it's it's all money driven. Um, and I, I yeah, let's 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 keep going. I want to I want to keep going into this. Okay, well, the takeaway on arrow mass is that you should use the greatest arrow mass, the heaviest arrow that you can that gives you an acceptable trajectory, a trajectory that you're happy with. You know, now for some of these guys, uh, they, they think shooting an elk at 100 yards is just fine. Uh, you know, I, I never was okay with that because animal, in the time it takes that arrow to get there, can leisurely take two or three steps. Just because he saw a tasty bit of grass over here, he wants to go munch on. And you can hit him absolutely anywhere or miss him completely. Uh, you know, my answer to, to people who have to shoot at long range is that they should quit practicing long range so much and spend that time learning some hunting skills to get a little closer. Yeah, it, it is doable. And that tra tra trajectory that you find acceptable, that's very subjective right there's guys it is very subjective thing yeah that's it but when you look at statistics of the ranges uh the average animal is shot at uh you know of different species you know most shots at the longest are inside 30 yards on the average and and many of them are going to be inside 20 yards on the average for, for deer and so forth i think the average shot works out right around 20 yards you know, where, they, where they've done studies keeping track of it. I do know that uh, on my own hunting, I was a stalking hunter, uh, didn't shoot much out of stands. Uh, uh, across those 627 animals uh, and the four that weren't recovered, where I have information to track, uh, my average shot distance was 15.97 yards. So inside 16 yards. And that was the average shot. The longest shot was 42 yards. There was only one of those. Something 94 point some odd percent were inside 20 yards. 
So, you know, m most most concepts of long-range shooting are things people would like to do, and I also think it's become one of those things, particularly on the Internet, the YouTube crowd, that, hey, I, I shot an animal at 80 yards, 86 yards. Okay, I'll help you. I got one 91 yards. You know, it's just it's one of those things they want to brag on. And, uh, you know, for me, I'd rather be able to brag and say, I shot that animal at four yards. To me, that's bragging stuff. Right. So it's it's all the way you want to look at it. You know, I, I think of it in terms of hunting skill, not shooting skill. Oh, we got off on the sideline. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking, but definitely what you're saying makes sense. And I mean, if you're going to shoot that far... Just shoot at a target. We can you can prove yourself that you hit a I'm target. Shoot that, that four taking rifle. Yeah. Oh yeah. Is that That's what I do? I got to shoot something at distance. Right. It's so much easier. <laughs>